In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to another episode of In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind in In the News with Bernstein's research analysts. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I'm your host, Sid Mulcahy, and in today's episode, we're going to tackle Ozempic, which has been taking the world by storm. With me today is Trevor Sterling, our spirits and beer analyst, as well as Alexia Howard, our food packaging analyst. Trevor and Alexia, welcome. Hi, Sid. How are you? Hi there. We've obviously had Alexia on a previous podcast. We've never had you, Trevor. And it's sort of interesting that we ended up inviting two people who cover food as well as spirits to talk about Ozempic and GLP-1s, which is sort of touted as a miracle drug. But there is a real big second derivative impact that is really impacting your space. But why don't we level set everything and level set the table? What is Ozempic? What is a GLP-1? Great question. If we're going to go down the the scientific route, GLP-1 stands for glucogen-like peptide. These are hormone drugs basically used to treat type 2 diabetes and obesity now. And it's a hormone that's produced naturally by humans in the gut and released in the presence of food. Now, what does it actually do? Well, firstly, it stimulates the pancreas to produce insulin, which lowers blood sugar. And perhaps more importantly, it also slows the speed at which your stomach empties. So you end up feeling fuller much faster. So what it seems to actually do is stops a lot of the food noise. Uh, a lot of people that struggle with an over over intense appetite talk about this idea of food noise where they're constantly thinking about what they're going to eat next and should they be eating it. And it's just a constant battle within themselves, which as you can imagine, is very unnerving and uh, very disruptive and distracting. And basically what this drug seems to do for a lot of people is it gets rid of that food noise. So people are not craving the sugar. They're not as worried about uh, what they're going to eat next. A lot of that just falls to the wayside. Okay, I guess the question is, how big an issue could this be? Is this just going to be a very, very niche product that only a handful of people take? Or is this something that we could see, you know, like 10%, 20%? Like, is the sky the limit with this product? I'm trying to figure that out. I'll, I'll jump in here and, and give it a go. I, first of all, I, I don't think anybody knows yet. We're in the really early innings of this. Azempic was approved back in 2017 just for diabetes. And then more recently in 2021, Wagovi was approved here in the US by the FDA for treating obesity. So we're only in the first couple of years of it being formally approved for obesity. Right now in the US, we've got about 1% of US adults currently using it. And the debate is, is, is it going to be 10%, 15%, 20% or more of US adults that could be using these drugs five years, 10 years down the road? Now, what we do know is that we've got about a third of US adults who would be considered officially obese by looking at their body mass indices. And we've got another roughly a third of US adults who would also be considered overweight, again, looking at their body mass index. So you've got a very sizable, no pun intended, portion of the US population that potentially could benefit from these drugs and benefit materially. 
There was recently a study that Nova Nordisk, the maker of Ozempic, published that demonstrated back in August that according to their results, the incidence of heart attacks and strokes is reduced by about 20%, which is a big deal for people if we start to think about the impact on healthcare costs and also quality of life. So the idea is that even though it's very small today, potentially it could ramp up to something much bigger over time. What we don't know yet is how big the insurance coverage is going to be. We still don't know exactly how tolerable it is for the majority of adults. We know that some people experience bad side effects like nausea and so on. But there does seem to be an awful lot of interest that's really picked up over the last couple of years as people have heard about these drugs on TikTok and other social media platforms. At the moment, the demand is obviously outstripping supply. It's very hard to get insurance coverage right now. So we don't know how big it's going to be, but the potential is that it could be, you know, we're modeling a scenario where it could be about 10% of US adults on these drugs in about five years as our base case, for example. Yeah. So the first thing is to say, Ozempic is a brand name. It's not a drug in itself. It's become the popular way of referring to these things. But GLP-1s are the drug class. There are many different GLP-1s. There are two that are approved. So semaglutide is the technical name. And Ozempic is a brand name of semaglutide. Wigovi, which we'll talk about later, is also semaglutide made by the same company in slightly higher doses. And there's another drug out there that's widely talked about at the moment called Munjaro. That's another GLP-1 that is made by Eli Lilly. So GLP-1s are a drug class, and Ozempic, it's a bit like saying it's a Ford F-150. It is one sub-brand, if you like, in this broader thing of class of GLP-1s. Same thing to say is just GLP-1s, uh, when it comes to what they do, Alexia outlined how they affect digestion, diabetes, and food. There's also increasing amounts of evidence that actually interfere with dopamine and transition pathways in your brain. This is when the relevance when it comes to alcohol is that it may actually affect people's desire for alcohol, and it may indeed affect other things that give you a dopamine rush. So that might be nicotine, that might be gambling. Now, these are in much, much earlier days. As Alexia said, it is clearly clinically proven to have a significant impact on type 2 diabetes. These drugs have clinically proven to have a significant impact on weight loss. And there are many more in the pipeline, many more of these GLP-1s. In terms of the impact on alcohol, gambling, nicotine, this is much, much earlier. We have some lab studies in rats that shows it does reduce alcohol desire, but we have a lot of things we don't know. For instance, when people are seriously alcoholic and have what's technically called alcohol use disorder, doesn't have the same impact. So there's an awful lot less known about the impact of GLP-1s in terms of, of those addictive behaviors and addictive substances, if you like. Is there anything that we could extrapolate off the 1% of the population that is already taking this on food and alcohol consumption? Do people just simply drink and eat less? Or is it the mixed shift of what they eat and what they drink that actually changes? I think it's all going to be down to the individual. But what we're seeing in a lot of the chat room conversations is... I think the most important thing that, that people notice that's different is that their craving for different types of junk food disappears. And so most people will say my consumption of chocolate and candy has really dropped off. Not to say that they completely lose their sweet tooth. It's just that rather than eating a candy bar a day, for example, they might just need one piece of chocolate two or three times a week. So the overall consumption level really comes down. 
At the other extreme on the greasy food side, people report that if they have more than a couple of bites of burger, for example, or greasy food from a quick service restaurant, they end up with some fairly serious gastrointestinal consequences. And so that sort of trains them to uh, avoid those types of foods. What people report eating more of is they're actively trying to consume more protein. The concern that people have when they're on these drugs and they're losing weight is that they don't want to lose muscle mass. And so they want to keep their protein consumption up, whether that's in the form of protein shakes or protein bars, but protein shakes seem to be very on trend with these patients. So protein is very on trend, whereas ingesting carbohydrates seems to be less of a priority. If you have a meal with your family and you're looking at the plate, you're probably going to eat the protein, the piece of chicken or whatever it is first, finish that protein. And then if you're still not full quite yet, you're going to have a few fries or a couple of spoonfuls of mashed potato as an incidental kind of finish it off kind of thing, rather than starting with the carbs and making it a carb heavy consumption profile. Trevor, and on the alcohol side? Yeah, again, there's much less evidence here, Sid. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. A lot of people who are seeing their patterns of alcohol consumption are changing, but it's not universal. Whereas many of the things that Alexia has described, virtually everybody who's taking GLP-1s experiences that. With alcohol, it doesn't seem to be a pattern of everybody has reduced alcohol consumption. Some people do. There's no clear pattern about what type of alcohol is affected. Uh, do you lose your appetite for all alcohol or one above another? Or do beer drinkers have more of a sense than, than wine drinkers? We really just don't know that at all yet. And equally, what we don't know is, do you go off alcohol entirely or just you don't feel such a great need for alcohol? So I think there's an awful lot yet we need to work out. Can either of you put this type of change in context, like we're talking about a massive change of what people might eat, what people might drink, maybe even consumption going down. Have we ever seen this in history? I think in food, there are some parallels. So we've looked at the math on this. Essentially, somebody that's embarking on a GLP-1 regime typically is going to reduce their average calorie count per day by about 20 to 25%. When you do the math on that, if you have, say, for example, 10% of U.S. adults reducing their calorie consumption by 20 to 25%, and that's not just during the period when they're dieting or losing weight, but it's also the fact that when they achieve their goal weight, which is a lot lower than their starting weight, they don't need as many calories to maintain that new low level of weight once they've gone through this process. If you've got 10% of U.S. adults reducing their calorie consumption by 20 to 25%, that's only a 2 to 2.5% reduction in overall calories consumed. And that's something that's going to ramp in very slowly over a five or five plus year period. So we're not talking about a sudden cliff where everything collapses in terms of food sales. But half a percent a year is not nothing. It's definitely a bit of a headwind. Then again, the U.S. population grows by about 0.4% per year. So maybe it all ends up being a little bit of a wash. The more interesting question here, I think, is how does it disproportionately affect certain categories? For example, I mentioned chocolate earlier. What we found is that about 9% of U.S. adults self-report eating more than 9% bars, boxes, or bags of candy each week. That's more than one a day. 
And when you do the math on those people and what proportion of the chocolate category sales they represent, it's about a third of the category. So conceivably, if you got 1% of that 9% of US adults, i.e. a ninth of them, suddenly meaningfully reducing their consumption of candy or chocolate, that could have a several percentage point impact on overall category sales. So I think what we have to do is really parse out where is this going to have an impact both on the positive and negative side. As I say, I think greasy foods, sweet snacks, potentially salty snacks as well, Things with empty calories, I think, are going to be really in the firing line here. By contrast, uh, categories like protein shakes, we're even seeing other protein-heavy categories, I think, benefit from this potentially already. Cottage cheese, for example, has seen a really big impact in sales volumes over the last six months to a year or so. So we're beginning to see it, I believe, in, in certain tiny pockets. But at the moment, broadly across all food categories, I don't think we're going to see a massive impact on overall food consumption. You know, this, this uh, comment about skew, it feels like a large proportion of people are the biggest proportion of smokers. A large proportion of people who drink Coke, like the people who drink it, uh, very frequently, like 10 a day, et cetera, are a large proportion of the Coke drinkers. Is that also the case with beer and alcohol as well, Trevor? It certainly is, Sid. So um, labels that people use to describe drinking, whether it's heavy or hazardous, sort of thing. but if you take people who consume more than 14 units a week, which in many countries is the limit of healthy drinking, that people who are drinking more than that could probably drinking somewhere around 50% of all alcohol. But that concentration is true of every industry. What's critical then is two things. One is, what is the potential uh, spillover effect, if you like, of people taking a Zempic or GLP-1s to treat weight loss? So if you believed that obese people were disproportionately likely to drink alcohol, then you'd be much more worried. And if obese people were responsible for 50% of all alcohol consumption, then you'd start to really get worried. Now, there's no evidence of that at all, that obese people tend, to the extent that obesity is often income-related and lower-income people tend to drink less, you could almost make a case to say obese people are less likely to drink alcohol. And that's something that my colleague Nadine and I are working on at the moment, is to, as much as we can to work out that overlap. I think the intriguing thing for the alcohol industry is what if GLP-1s are proven to be effective in the treatment of alcohol disorders per se, putting to one side the, the uh, treatment with weight loss? Now, there are compounds out there already that are used to help people who've got alcohol use disorder. You'd have to prove, first of all, that GLP-1s are more effective than these compounds, which we don't know, and that they have fewer side effects. But we know that GLP-1s already have one huge side effect, is you lose a lot of weight. So if you're somebody who's a really abuser of alcohol and you're already at a normal weight, using a GLP-1 could actually be even worse for you compared to existing medication. So there's a huge amount of things out there. So it is certainly clear that alcohol consumption is concentrated and abusive alcohol consumption is even more concentrated. But whether that makes them alcohol more or less susceptible to GLP-1s, I think at the moment the evidence would say no but it's something that we are working on at the moment to try and work that one out. Okay, that's a fascinating point in terms of if you were to look at a Venn diagram of the people who consume a lot of calories, they might actually be right in the square of the heart of the GLP-1 debate, whereas alcohol is still kind of an open-related question. 
Well, I think Alexa as a, an analogy, or you know, if you look at candy bars, and it's particularly, let's say, lower, uh, high sugar candy bars, there's high, likely to be a lot of concentration between the people who are eating those and consuming those and the obese population. But I'll, I'll hand over to Lexi. I don't want to make her point for her. Oh, no, exactly. I think if you think about these things in terms of the overlap, I think that's really the key here. I think there probably is a fairly strong argument to be made that if you are over-consuming or consuming a lot of candy, the chances are that you probably have a higher body mass index. I think what's less clear is whether people with those high body mass indices are the people that are going to be prescribed GLP-1s in the first wave of patients. But I think definitely we've got a stronger overlap here on the, on the candy side. And potentially my colleague Callum also comments that there's quite a big, uh, big overlap and concentration in the carbonated soft drink space as well. So you've got a relatively small portion of US adults that represent a pretty sizable uh, portion of carbonated soft drink consumption. You know, we talk about all this potential disruption that's happening, but at least like the near-term impact, virtually all of your companies have already spoken about this in the last past two or three weeks. And it seems like not a single company is actually reporting seeing any discernible impact. And I'm curious to why that is. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's just too soon. We've only got 1% of US adults using these drugs. And for broad-based food consumption, particularly for, for meal-type products where you get a lot of different consumers, and the consumption is not as concentrated as it, as it might be in junk food. I think they can genuinely say there's not much impact going on now. Now, we do have a bit of a volume problem in food, but I think that's much more to do with the fact that foods associated with cooking from scratch went up in price an awful lot in 2022. If you think about eggs and avian flu, they went through the roof last year. Meat also went up. This year, the prices are coming down on those simpler ingredients that are associated with cooking from scratch at home. And so people are moving towards cooking from scratch more this year than eating more heavily processed packaged foods. So there is a volume impact, but I think rightly the company leaders are saying it's not the GLP-1s at the moment. So I, I think that's a fair, fair comment. Maybe two more perspectives on that, Sid. The first thing is GLP-1s have been used in the context of diabetes and the treatment of diabetes since 2017. And if there were a massive cliff effect for alcohol, Surely we'd have known this already because all those people, diabetic people who are taking GLP-1s would have stopped drinking alcohol and we'd start to see it uh, at least anecdotally or much more strongly than anecdotally that would start to come through. So then you've got to say, well, why is the market in such a tizzy about GLP-1s at the moment? And arguably that's due to celebrities who've been using GLP-1 for weight loss and have gone onto social media saying, isn't this amazing? And, and this has raised the profile of GLP-1s in the public mind. And if you then take that one step further, if we are looking at GLP-1s for treatment of weight loss, and it's very expensive, so it's going to be higher income people, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to say that it skews heavily towards female. So if you have higher income women who are the GLP-1 super users at the moment or the leading on that, maybe Chardonnay is at much more of a risk than light beer. So I can look at this through many different lenses. So this may not be Joe Sixpack, who's going to be the uh, the guy who's taking GLP-1s, reducing his alcohol consumption. That's absolutely fascinating. And do we know like when these early adopters, when they actually hit their weight goals, what ends up happening? Do they increase consumption again? Do they maintain consumption? 
Do they get off of these drugs? What ends up happening to those people? Again, quite honestly, it's, it's really early days. And I think what we're hearing, again, from people that are currently using them is that a lot of them have a goal of weaning themselves off these drugs once they hit their goal weight. The problem is the studies have generally shown that uh, people regain about two-thirds of the weight that they lost if they completely give them up. So it may be that over time people end up dropping down to a lower dosage so they, they can maintain rather than continue to lose weight. Obviously, you don't want to continue losing weight uh, into a into going too far in the other direction. But I think it's very early to tell. What I think is very clear is that these drugs really affect the metabolism of each individual very differently. So dosage levels, people are working very closely with their doctors to try to figure out what's the right dosage level so that I can lose weight at an appropriate safe pace, hit my goal weight. And, and then we can start to think about, do I stay on these drugs, maybe reduce the frequency or the level of dose that I'm taking? Or is it something that I can wean myself off over time. As I say, the science is, uh, there's lots of different opinions on this front that I think are going to have meaningful impacts on how the insurance company thinks about covering people, how consumers or patients think about using these drugs. Is it something that you would use for a period of time, hit your goal weight? If you find out that you're regaining weight, do you need to go back on for a period of time? So I think, again, that these are issues that are going to be resolved uh, over the longer term. A couple more thoughts as well, sit on that. At the moment, consumers don't like the idea of going on these drugs forever. There's a lot of people who are saying, I don't want to be on these drugs. And that's partly probably related because they're self-injected. So the drugs as approved for weight loss are self-injected. There are forms of GLP-1 that are tablets that are used for diabetes, but those have not yet been approved for weight loss. Now, it's probably going to come at some stage. If these are ultimately become tablet forms, Maybe they end up like ACE inhibitors. Uh, so people who've got high blood pressure are happy to take ACE inhibitors forever because they know that keeps their blood pressure down and there's no social stigma to taking a pill every day because lots of people are doing it. So we're far from knowing how much resistance there'll be to GLP-1s forever if they become the cost comes down and if it becomes tablet form. Trevor, can I take a step back? I think like part of the reason, as you mentioned, that the market is sort of in a tizzy is because this is in the media. It is celebrities. If you walk up and down the Upper East Side in New York, I think you'd see a lot of people who are actually on some of these drugs. But you're sitting across the pond. What does the adoption look like in Europe? Has it actually captured the same sort of media attention as it has in the US? The short answer is no. This somewhat obsession about GLP-1s is very much US. And partly that's understandable because depending on how you define obesity, 40% of the US population are obese. It's about 30% of the UK. It's about 20% of continental Europe. And when you get into emerging markets, it's much, much lower. Now, that said, certain countries like South Africa and Mexico are having increased problems with overweight and, and obesity, and maybe they'll end up there. But the other thing is if you move to that's in emerging markets, the affordability of GLP-1, certainly in any realistic time frame, is going to be much, much diminished. So I would say if you're any company, whatever industry you're in, if you're heavily US-oriented, you've got much more risk from GLP-1s, whatever you're in. So I think certainly when it comes to my companies and the companies I cover, who often have significant businesses in emerging markets, which are much less at risk, I think also 
the more you're selling premium products, the more you are less dependent on a volume of alcohol, then you're more likely, you're less likely to be at risk. So I think if there is risk out there, it's definitely concentrated in the purveyors of alcohol to lower income Americans. You know, one of the things that I always think about, and part of the reason that I brought up Europe is the relationship with food. I guess the relationship with food is two fronts. One, maybe you're cooking at home and you're just feeding your family. So that's one aspect of just trying to feed yourself. And then there's another element, which is the social element of it. And I look across every restaurant, every bar, it seems completely full. Does that change or does the social element of how we have a relationship with food and alcohol, does that ever change? Yeah, I, I, I think that obviously in terms of the social activity of going out to a restaurant, that's not going to go away. In fact, what a lot of people report is ordering off the kids' menu if they're on GLP-1 drugs and they don't feel as though they can eat a full portion. So we might actually see more availability of smaller portions in restaurants. Uh, a lot of people right now are saying, you know, I'll eat a few bites off my, my husband's plate or somebody else's, or I'll order an appetizer instead of a full meal and just have a few bites for myself. I think it's really the activity of going to a quick service restaurant by yourself for a quick meal, that probably gets affected. But for the social family type of activity, probably less so. Again, uh, I'm sure uh, our restaurant analysts would have views on that, but that's what we're, we're seeing from the data so far. I think Sid, from an alcohol perspective, having talked to some friends and colleagues and clients who have experienced reduced appetite for alcohol, they still drink alcohol when they go out. They want that social experience, that social lubrication. And they also say, you know, there's an element of the functional aspect of alcohol that it makes you feel more outgoing and more enthusiastic and more sociable. And to the extent that, you know, we've, uh, we think historically we talked about Dutch courage about giving alcohol to soldiers before they went into warfare. Now you put that into a nightclub context of maybe you want that buzz from the alcohol. And maybe if you don't like alcohol, you know, you still take it for the buzz effect. So we are still not, we're really, really in the early stage of this. But I think it is true that when you have something that's part of a social ritual and not just the chemical physiological impact, then I think that's something that's very important to take into consideration. Okay. I don't want to think too far-fetched, but it feels like GLP-1s, the first order impact is weight loss, lower obesity, and so forth. The second order impact is obviously about food, potentially even alcohol consumption, maybe even dealing with alcoholism to some degree. If we could think about what the unintended consequences to finish off are, what do you think the wildest unintended consequences, maybe five or 10 years down the line, as we're listening to this podcast again, we're like, wow, this is something that we could have potentially seen or not seen? So for me, um, just given everything that I've been reading online, I think there are some obvious sort of near-in type of consequences, things like people being more conscious of eating more supplements to make sure that they're not malnourished. But that's near-in. I think other questions are around, do people live longer? They probably do because we've got many studies that show that if your BMI is on the very extreme end of high, you have a serious consequence in terms of the number of years of, of life that you give up as a consequence of that. So I think as we see more of what the consequences are here, we, we are going to see longevity potentially improve and quality of life as well in terms of fewer joint issues, uh, lower incidence of diabetes and, and maybe other cardiovascular events as well. One comment that we got that I've seen online when people have talked about addictive habits is, 
I probably won't be buying stuff online as much. That's kind of a question. And then the other one that really is kind of interesting, and again, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to claim that this is going to happen, but I've seen a lot of conversation online about this amongst women, is that there is a disproportionate impact of fertility and heavy weight. And so a lot of people in the chat rooms are actually saying, I fell pregnant and this is a surprise. I've been trying for a while. So again, I don't have scientific actual data to prove any of that, but it's coming up a lot. Uh, so we could see potentially the birth rating increasing. As I say, it's uh, very early days on that front, but that's something that's uh, that's potentially out there. Two other thoughts. I said One, I think, is to the extent that you reduce the volume of alcohol you consume, you may well compensate by drinking better alcohol. And that, so you might see that the value of spend on alcohol remains fairly constant, even if the volume went down, which is, I think, something that the industry has been moving towards for ages. Another one is, could we actually see an increase in eating disorders if people who actually don't need to lose weight, but think they should lose weight and are pursuing a body image that's actually inappropriate for them, and you actually end up with an increase in eating disorders because people who shouldn't be taking GLP-1s do take GLP-1s. The wildest one I heard was during the pandemic, the early days, nobody was driving, car crashes basically plummeted, and as a result, organ donations plummeted as well. Imagine a world where alcohol and drunk driving goes down and all of a sudden we have less organ donations. Um, kind of crazy to think about all these unintended consequences. With that, Alexia and Trevor, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sid. Thank you very much, Sid. This has been another episode of Bernstein's In The Know. Please don't forget to like and subscribe to wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.